Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brom Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at bromradio.com. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Brum Show on Brom Radio. This is the program where we look at the big and little screen and what it's taught us about life, love, and everything else. This week, we're joined by three academic criminologists from Birmingham City University to talk about the dark world of serial killers, a subject covered widely on screen, but what do the movies get right and what do they get wrong? By its nature, this subject is one which some may find disturbing, so please take this as a warning. We'll understand if this episode is not for you. For those of you who are listening on, we hope you enjoy yourselves and learn something. At the very least, we'll be playing some great music. And as we all know, the devil has all the best tunes. You like Huey Lewis on the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Alan. Yes, Alan? Why are the copies of the style section all over the place? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Helen. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for her most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square, a song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Oh, that is. I'm, I'm going to play the whole song, but I can't because we've got so much other stuff to get through. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Screen Brum Show here on Brum Radio. As, as I mentioned in that opening clip, we are going to be talking about serial killers, and of course, that opening scene that you heard there, the scene you opened, you heard there was from. American Psycho, which I think is, what, 2003? I can't remember when it came out now. But it's one of the things we're going to be talking about because what we are going to be doing today is we're talking all things serial killer. But um, don't worry, we're not going to be, well, we hope we're not going to be exploitative and crass because we've got some experts in the room to keep us on our toes, people who actually know about serial killers. So um, I've got one eye on the exit as I look at them, but they all look very nice and um, polite to me. Um, so let me uh, let them let you introduce yourselves. If we begin with, um, well, Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm Professor Elizabeth Yardley, and I'm a professor of criminology at Birmingham City University. And with you are? I I am uh, Adam. Uh, uh, I'm a criminologist at Birmingham City University. And hi, I'm Kevin. I'm also a criminologist lecturer at Birmingham City University. Um, first question, actually, what is a criminologist? Wow, that's a that's a real question, isn't it? Um, yeah. 
essentially, if you, you boil it down, it, it's looking at crime and society's response to it. And, and it can encompass a whole range of things around that, can't it? So looking at prisons, looking at punishment, looking at representations of crime, um, looking at what is crime, uh, because crime isn't something that just exists. We've got to label it as such, haven't we? Somebody somewhere decides when something becomes a criminal offence. Mm. So lots and lots of ins and outs all around criminology. And... Um you are. We're going to be talking about murder, which I, you know, I guess is one of the less ambiguous crimes. Uh, it rarely, I uh, imagine, a society in which that has been, uh, you know, not frowned upon. Although I suppose it defines. The question is, what defines murder? And you know, I suppose we have all different sorts of judicial and extrajudicial killing as well. Yeah, we do indeed. And the thing with murder, and we tend to use the term homicide when we're talking to our students about it, because homicide actually describes the act of taking somebody's life. When we're using terms like murder or manslaughter, we're referring to the legal penalty that applies afterwards based on the amount of culpability, the amount of intention. Um, so homicide is, is a really broad net, and, and you can look at, at what the state does in mm. terms of warfare and, and those those types of activities, which also encompasses homicide. So it's a, it, it's a really, really interesting crime because you, you take one look at it and you think, well, yeah, that's a really simple part of criminology, but actually it's, it's inherently complex. Well, absolutely. I mean, we all say, you know, thou shalt not kill, um, brackets, except for any number of other circumstances. Um, so we're going to be having a lot of, uh, I think, highbrow discussion today. Um, that's from that's obviously from our three guests. Tim and I will be giving the lowbrow um, component of that. So that's Mr. Tim Wilson. Hello, Tim. Lowbrow. Very low. Very low. No, Tim is um, in a different room to us today, so we're operating on quite a different uh, setup to normal. So forgive us if we're, we're gazing at each other through the glass. It's quite a, it's quite a, a moment. Um, but Tim is going to be... So, uh, Tim, we're going to be talking about the films. Which would you say... Well, no, I'm going to ask you... I'm not going to ask you what your favourite one is. I'm going to move on to that a little bit later. Um, one thing uh, regular listeners will also notice is that we are without uh, another voice in the studio, and that is Lucy Beth. Lucy Beth, our producer and other contributor, is, no, is not able to come in today as she is um, in hospital, but we are hoping that she's listening in. We hope you, you can hear us, Lucy. And um, we hope that the show sounds um, okay to you uh, and he's going to help you through uh, whatever it is that you're going through in the hospital at the moment. That sounds much more depressing than I hope. We miss you, Lucy. We do miss you and we'll see you soon. Um, and that means that those of you that are sending us tweets um, will be responded to by Mr. Tim Wilson. So Tim is manning the tweet deck and you can contact us at Screen Brum. We also have an email. If you're not on Twitter, you can email us and I always forget the address. Tim, what's the address? If you want to email us, it's info at screenbrum.co.uk. Info at screenbrum.co.uk. And uh, I think we've got Facebook as well, so look it up there. But, you know, you can see how on top of all the social media I am. Um, so, and you also know, you may have noticed there that we played some music at the beginning. You know what that is, because Patrick Bateman from American Psycho explained it to you. It was Huey Lewis in the news, hip to be square. So, um, thank you again for coming in. Um, before we we delve into the world of the serial killer, I think it's quite a good idea to find out what a serial killer is. Can you define one for us? Well, Adam, do you want to tell, tell them our definition? Because uh, there are several definitions. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it is a social co construction uh, serial murder, and there are various definitions, thing if you're in the UK or in America, uh, etc. But uh, we kind of define academically um, a serial killer as an individual who kills three or more 
uh, victims in a period greater than 30 days. Any less than that, then you're more likely to be like a mass or a spree killer. Right, a spree killer, what's that? A spree killer is when you kill like three or more victims in a very close period of time, and that can, can include multiple locations. So like Anders Brevik can be, you know, someone can be defined in a sense as a spree killer because you know he killed victims in one location and then travelled and uh, to the island and killed other victims in a short period of time. Uh-huh. Whilst a mass murderer tends to be in very uh, in one location with multiple victims. Right. So uh, let me think. So um, Michael Myers. Uh, he came home and did it all on one night. So is he, is he not a serial killer? But he did murder his sister when he was very young. So okay. And then he killed multiple victims uh, 20 years later, I believe it is, in the film. Um, so in some way, he would fit the definition of a serial murder because of the, 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 the timing of his victims. And one of the key things with serial killers as well is that in between their killings, there tends to be a cooling-off period. They return to some semblance of normal life in between. But when you look at spree killers, you, you don't have that. It is one continuous episode of, of killing. Good. I'm feeling I'm feeling uh, warm and fresh already. So um, we we do want to hear from you um, at Screen Brum. Let us know what your what your favourite serial killer is. Now that sounds quite sinister. Um, the films, film. the films that uh, yeah. that that uh, work for you in terms of of these serial killers. And and I think as you say, the def- definition of serial killer we often think of as you know this sort of blood crazed psychopath in films. But you know it can be someone who is a, a hitman. I suppose an assassin would be a serial killer, right? Um, anyone who's uh, or a, a, a terrorist, so so people whose motives aren't necessarily, you know, these kind of deranged brainstorms that we've been led to believe. Um, so we're going to be finding out what is a serial killer. We want to hear uh, from you, so do tweet us in. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to play a little bit of music, uh, give you the opportunity to to sort of think about this and tweet us your favourite. You're saying this favourite. This is not used to this. Um, your least favourite serial killers, um, and um, we'll we'll ask you a question. Sorry, Tim. I think a way of phrasing it is send in your favourite movie there that has serial yes. killer movies, characters. and of course, yeah. TV uh, we're covering as well. Yeah. So ultimately, we, we're going to be asking uh, one question today, um, and we're going to hopefully get an answer to it. And um, you all know what the question is, so let's have it set to music. There we are, Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads, of course. So uh, Psycho Killer um, is a good place for us to start because um, we're going to be talking about a range of films and uh, Psycho is a good one to start with. Um, beforehand, you know, I've, been, I've watched a fair few films. I've never, you know, I'm not a professional criminologist, not yet. Um, but what I do know about serial killers is they are all men they are all um, super intelligent they all um, taunt the police they are all um, driven to do what they do um, out of um, a really screwed up relationship with their mum that's right right that's the that's not the quite no oh right um, so around about 15 to 18% of serial killers are actually women so they're, they're not all men um a lot of people think that they are kind of compelled to do what they do because they're, they're, they're mentally unwell, they're not in control of their actions. But actually, in the vast majority of cases, they're making the choice to kill time and time and time again. Um, but I think Hollywood has given us a, a lot of, of stereotypes, hasn't it, in terms of what a serial killer mm, looks yeah. like. And especially who a serial killer kills as well. So when you look at the groups of people who are most often targeted by serial killers, it's not nice-looking, middle-class, white, 
blonde women from from Beverly Hills. It's the the most vulnerable vulnerable groups of our society. So it's sex workers, it's runaways, it's homeless the elderly, people. homeless yeah. people, children. But it's hard to build kind of a connection and uh, sort of compassion for the audience if they feel somehow these people because when um, serial killers often portrayed in you know in the media when the news reporting they often try and downplay the victims because they know that'll lose public uh, the public will lose kind of their attention and their care for those cases because in some way they feel like they somehow deserve it given their kind of if, if they're if they're sex workers mm. uh, they kind of um, uh, look down upon upon that. Mm. Um, so I think obviously with films, they kind of change that to to victims. That well, they're making the, the ideal victim. Ideal victim. That's one of the terms yes. that we use quite a lot in criminology. Mm. This idea that there are some people when they become the victims of crime, we're much quicker mm. to sympathise with them and to feel sorry for them and to say, God, that's a terrible thing that happened to you. But when other people become the victims of crime, we think, well, you know, you shouldn't have been doing this or yeah. well, you shouldn't have been involved in 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 that thing that was going on. So you're kind of to blame for your own victimisation. And that's a classic. That's a classic trope in these films of, you know, particularly the the teen slasher films is, you know, and we'll talk about John Carpenter's Halloween later on. But, you know, well, if you have sex, well, that's kind of your fault. And we, mm-hmm. what we have is the virginal hero is the only one that survives that. I mean, that's a classic kind of trope mm-hmm. of these films. Um, Psycho, then, um, as a film, the the word has become almost synonymous with with serial killing. Is is it the right term to describe uh, the, this, someone who has a kind of mental health issue? I think one of the reasons why we hold on to the term psycho is because it allows us to distance ourselves from killings, from people who, who kill. Uh, it's, it's so much easier for us as a society to be able to say, OK, that person over there, that's de- we dehumanise them in some way so that we can... I don't, I feel better about ourselves. That, that's really interesting, but at the same time, if you look at the character of Norman Bates. It's one of the first examples where it's it's not clearly a monster. This is someone who could be a friend, a boyfriend, a, you know, a mm. partner. You have son. that superficial charm, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. So that's yeah. a really good point, Karen, about the idea of the, the kind of disconnect and trying to remove ourselves. But at the same time, there is that kind of contradiction of how this is like a like a, a young, good-looking, seemingly intelligent and friendly young man as well. So there is that kind of interesting. In, in the original Robert, the, the, not, the those I'm sure many everyone who's listened to it will heard the film, but seen the film in 1960, it was based on a Robert Block novel, and the original character. Uh, of Norma Bates was uh, overweight, middle-aged, kind of socially inept, uh, and was rewritten for the film as a kind of, you know, charming, handsome, Anthony Perkins type. So yes, that um, very much ties in with what you were saying there. Um, the, the the possibly the most um, in, most well-known score of all of all film history, and the most well-known scene, possibly the greatest individual scene ever filmed. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Tim's doing it there. Go on, do the, do with the thing. No, I was just going to just do the psycho music and I decided well, I won't go there, there, there. I just wouldn't do it. All made with strings. People often... It was, it was rumoured at the time that um, he used cat uh, squeals on the soundtrack, but it was actually all done with strings. Yeah. Bernard Herrmann's score. I mean, what a setup. I like you got Alfred Hitchcock... Um, Bernard Herrmann's score and then Saul Bass doing the opening sequence I mean how could that film fail uh, but it was, wasn't very wasn't very popular at the time when it came out mixed reviews I thought it was interesting in that film just as a, a layman in film is how you set up as if she's the main character and then of course what happens to her is I think it's really interesting yeah she, you don't you don't meet Norman Bates for 20 minutes in that film which is a long time in, in film terms so um, is it you know is this something we can learn from is, is he in any way 
a true life, you know, he, he's represented here as, I guess, schizophrenia. I don't know if he's ever defined, but he has some kind of health problem, shall we say. It's interesting because it raises quite a lot of questions that the use of that term psycho, especially with regards to, to Norman Bates. So there's the confusion between psychopathy and psychosis, which I hear people making every single day. Um, basically, when we're talking about somebody who's a psychopath, um, this is somebody who is in control of their actions. They know what they're doing. They know the difference between right and wrong. Um, but they have, they're kind of what we would describe as emotionally empty. They don't have a conscience. They don't feel bad about hurting people. Um, and they basically go through life just getting the things they want and to hell with anybody who gets in their way. And, th- and that's relatively common, isn't it, in, in terms of the 1% of the population or something? Is that right? Well, also, they're not by rule violent. Right, which is why we sort of have to move away from the idea of a person being described as a psychopath immediately conjuring the mind of a you know a vicious killer because that's not yeah there's there's a great book um who the authors are now called snakes in suits yes and it's Paul Babiak. A, yes and it's uh, all about you know looking at the uh, kind of the socioeconomic positions in which psychopaths are, are en- entered into and if you're from a lower economic kind of background, you're more likely to get involved in, in street crime, you know, petty crime and end up in prison and gangs. But if you're born into a more affluent area, you're more likely to end up being like a um, you know, head of a, a company, for example. Or a politician. Or a politician. <laughs> yeah. I am not gonna name any names. <laughs> I've got some I've got some people in my mind, but I'm not gonna name any names here. Um the I mean the we talked about the show scene there. Um Tim, um from a from a film nerd point of view, did you know they were 77 separate camera angles used in that film. No, but I can totally sequence. believe it. Yeah. It was a really difficult yeah. one to, to film, apparently. Apparently, uh, Janet Lee rarely took showers again, having <laughs> seen herself in that. Um, and one of the other things that, that, that that's a piece of trivia I always find intriguing is when the film was submitted to the censors in the US, um, it was rejected on the grounds that you could see one of Janet Lee's breasts. Um, but um, so w- and they, they sent it back to Alfred Hitchcock and said, cut that out so he just held on to it for a week didn't do anything sent it back and they passed it the second time around because it ha- everything happens so fast in that film it, people think they can see things they can't so people often think you can see the knife going into her abdomen um, although it, it, it's still there's still debate um, some people say you can because everything there's so many cuts in very short succession on that film and it's the film that kind of created the the slasher genre really all of these films have come from it's not the first necessary serial killer film but the first one and I think it just creates that idea of I, I think it just creates that idea an interesting point you make about the psychopathy psychosis thing would is he when we say psycho is he a psychopath or is he a psychosis sufferer well, I, if you you look at his his behaviour kind of throughout the film, the, there are lots of examples of when he's in control of what he's doing, when he isn't, you know, running around, you know, going mad, you know, as many people would would say that that would describe somebody who was experiencing, you know, an episode of mental ill health. You know, they were experiencing a psychosis which compelled them to behave in a particular way um when we have people who do have those conditions getting involved in criminality and offending their offending tends to be quite disorganized and and quite kind of chaotic but here's somebody who can manage this kind of semblance of a normal life can't he he can kind of pass for Mm -hmm. normal he's got this veneer of respectability so I'd be more tempted to go down the psychopathy rather than the psychosis route, definitely. I haven't watched the TV show, but I wonder whether that explores that in more detail, given that it's more contemporary and has, I think it's five 
seasons. Uh, TV yeah. show of yeah. uh, I think it's called Bates, 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 Bates Motel. Motel. Oh, yeah. I know. I and I wonder where that could might explore it in a bit more kind of uh, in detail, mm. given you know his kind of background and how he ended up. Um, if you haven't seen the film, you may want to uh, cover your ears for the next one minute and 33 seconds because I'm going to play the final scene. But this is the moment perhaps where it kind of reveals his motivation, um, perhaps in, in most explicitly. And it has got one of the most chilling final shots in cinema, which obviously you won't hear on the radio, but <laughs> you can always go and get the film, right? Oh, don't watch the remake, by the way. Don't watch that. It's completely pointless. Uh, it might be. son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad, and in the end he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Well, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Right, so there we are. It was all mum's fault, uh, according to uh, the ending there of Psycho. And that is, you know, that's a trope we see so much, isn't it? This idea, you know, there's a lot of accusations of misogyny in a lot of these films. Do you, you know, is this, is this, is it a complete red herring, this idea that, you know, it's all about our relationship with our mums? I think a lot of violent crime, when we, we look at it in detail, when we look at where that comes from, we can very often trace that back to somebody's childhood, somebody's upbringing. Um, a lot of the, the people that we've worked with who are very serious offenders have had the, the most disruptive and chaotic childhood you could ever imagine. But I always flip it and say, well, actually, there are lots of children who have terrible childhoods, awful relationships with their parents, and then they don't go on to harm other people. So so I think it is one of those those myths that, that seems to have mushroomed and, and everybody goes back to the mummy issues of, mm. of serial killers. But there's something in it, but yeah. it's not the be-all and end-all. I think the one kind of case, quite famous case, that I think has not really helped that is the Ed, Ed Kemper. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, North American, I think it's called North American Serial Killer, the co-ed. Co-ed killer. Co-ed yeah. killer. And uh, he often blamed his mum for you know his 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 troubles and problems in life and he did some quite nasty things to her I think I believe she was his last victim yes, yes. Um, and yeah I, I don't think I should say over the radio what he did yeah but please don't yes <laughs> but um, it's pretty horrible stuff yeah. yeah so I mean yeah I mean it, 
film is not perhaps the most progressive medium already. Well, may, maybe, but there's a lot of, of, of misogyny in, in, in film. Um, but it is some of the films we are going to talk about here do have uh, a female director. We talk Monster is another great example, um, which is directed by Patty Jenkins, who's very much flying high at the moment with uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, and is it Mary Heron who did... Um, Psycho, yeah. American yeah. Psycho, yeah. which is the film we are going to talk about next. We have a clip of it before. Um, just want to say thank you very much for your tweets. Lots of tweets coming in at the moment. <coughs> Excuse me. Feathers and Wings. Hello, Feathers and Wings. Your favourite is the last horror movie. Haven't seen that one. Is that one of those, uh, those found footage documentary ones? I think it is. It's the Saw films. Ooh. Mm. Saw. Now, I could not be getting with those. Gornography. Gornography. Yeah. That's Talk a great porn, term. Whatever you want to call it. And right. just the level of detail yeah. he goes through. It just it's, isn't... It, it, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Cube film Cell. I remember seeing Cell at the cinema. That's um, Many happy evenings had there. Yeah, oh, that was Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer yes, Lopez yeah. and yes, Vincent yeah. Donfro. It's visually beautiful. Oh yeah, it, it goes in. You know, that's going inside, and that's that thing, isn't it? All oh, so many of these films get inside the mind of a serial killer. I think that's what people are fascinated by. Yeah, why on earth do you want to do that? So Lucy um, has has tweeted a question: um, Do serial killers often recognise themselves as such? Do they, you know, do they do they aspire? We we see this, you know, want to be a serial killer. It's a kind of Badge of honor. Do they, you know, is it a term they would use? There have been a couple of cases yeah. where um, serial killers, you know, people want, uh, seem to be motivated, you know, seem to be motivated by a sense of um, status and, and position that that title provides them, given how we as a society give uh, attention and status to the serial killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's is it Stephen Griffiths. Yeah. Isn't it? Is that Stephen Griffiths? He was a, he was a PhD student in criminology. And um, he was fascinated, but he was fascinated by serial killers, and um, I think there's a bit of him. You know, there was a part of him that wanted to have that same kind of status and recognition, mm. almost like these were his idols. Mm. But I don't think it makes up a large portion of serial murderers who are, mo- are motivated for that by that means. A lot of them don't want to be caught. No, I think some of them have got that narcissistic element to their personalities. Well, um, we have been uh, looking at just want to uh, get this of the idea of killers who have actually written books about what their their killings, mm. and you know, we've we've been looking at that at the minute, and there's actually a hell of a lot of examples of that. Well, sort of after they've been caught. Or yeah. Mm. So going on from Liz's point about narcissism, you know, they've been found guilty of crime, these killings, and in some cases they write about them afterwards, but in some cases they were actually caught by writing mm. about these killings whilst they were yeah and mm. back to the case of Stephen Griffiths I believe he came up with his own name yeah like the often they cannibal. will oh. yeah there was no evidence that he ate his victims but he called himself the crossbow cannibal because he thought that would sell more they, mm. they kind of identify a brand for themselves mm. don't they mm. and I do wonder sometimes how influential um, television and film have been in terms of well, that desire to be noticed that's I mean that's that's another part of, of Lucy's question is you know to what extent, you know, there's so much discussion around the influence of, of violence on, on people who, who view it. Is there, in, in your experience, any kind of, you know, scholarly evidence around this stuff? Do, do these, do watching violent films, you know, make us more violent or less 
Uh, I think it can be a a contributing factor, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And a lot of the work that we do at Birmingham City University, we look at the wider context of violent crime. So we look at neoliberalism, we look at consumer capitalist society, we look at a whole range of harms that people do to one another, not necessarily criminal deviant harms. But, but other forms of, of, of basically disrespecting other people and being very yeah. self-centered. I think it's kind of a dangerous road to go down to say that it's just the media. Like same, same with video games or with drill and rap music. Mm. It's just, it to me, it's just it just doesn't really lead anywhere. And uh, th- if that was the case, there'd be an awful lot more mm. It's killers. one of a whole lot of other yeah. factors, isn't yeah. it? I, yeah. I mean, you'd have all of us, you know, we, we're exposed to real-life violence and we're all okay, so there's got to be a lot more that goes into the formation of a serial killer. Well, that's reassuring for all our, our listeners because they are obviously watching a lot of these films. Feathers and Wings have also mentioned Dexter. Marcus, hello Marcus, you've mentioned uh, Seven, which he mentioned, says creates a compelling and disturbing mystery whilst also developing its characters. Performances in it are top-notch, very true. Joel Blackledge, the abominable Doctor vibes is an all-time great. That's Camp. A very Joel Blackledge. <laughs> choice, Camp, but scary revenge killings and Vincent yeah. Price. Uncle Rupert, uh, you've mentioned Henry, portrayed of a serial killer, um, which is, again he he was interested in the fact that that film is from the point of view of the killer, not the point of view of the police and the people trying to catch him. Um, and Carl has mentioned Carl Josebury, Halloween. His entire tweet is Halloween because well. well Halloween um, and uh, Joel has mentioned another film we're going to show some say something from later so I'm not going to mention that but you mentioned there consumer capitalism you mentioned neoliberalism so let's talk about uh, American Psycho which puts that social critique very much front and center so this is the film from um, what we're we talking about here 2000 or 2000 um, directed by Mary Harron did you know David Cronenberg was originally in the frame yeah, and I can to- yeah, I can totally see that version as mm, well. Yeah, it would totally uh, that would that would that would also extend the uh, critique, social commentary <laughs> yeah, to, to the nth degree, wouldn't to it? To breaking point, amazing yeah. performance from Christian That's Bale. Probably be a bit more graphic. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it is <laughs> this is pretty graphic. Uh, it is, but it's it's a lot less the graphic than the novel actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, which you know you really need to have a, st- a strong stomach for. So yeah, an overtly political film, uh, social commentary. To me, the American is the key part of that title um you know it's it's it asks us whether or not our kind of desire to to look great and be fully on top of all the consumerist stuff is really that different it's the like american it, dream isn't it yeah mm-hmm. sort of self-gratification to the yeah, max yeah i think that it's ba- i'm sure it's based in the 1980s um and is, same yeah. in the novel yeah i think there's no mistake there with the push of like the reagan administration neoliberalism but and i really think that in my kind of um, um perspective on the film is that he's a personification of kind of um, the the ability to get away with things if you're a neoliberal, if you, you're know, elite, if you have mm-hmm. a lot of power and money, and that you can, you know, in the film, you, you know, it depends how you look at it, but he kills multiple people, and no one really seems to care or pay attention or notice. Regardless, he's clearly, as um, talking to Kevin earlier about he was crying, for, you know, almost crying for help, saying, look, look what I've done, stop me, and people kind of shrug, shrug it off. And mm. I think it's that sense of if you're, if you're powerful and you've you're rich you can get away with things you know a lot, a lot of you know things that other people that don't have that same advantages mm. would never get away with that that question of you know that stop me again it's something we see a lot in films as in seven which you mentioned this idea of people wanting to be caught and you know hating themselves is that is that again is that a true thing or is that a, a, a film creation 
Yeah, my my view on that, it, whenever I've been asked to comment on, on cases of serial murder, real cases, and, and people have asked me, oh, clearly they wanted to be caught, they wanted to be stopped. I think very often what it is, is they want the recognition for what they've done. It's that narcissistic kind of element to their personalities. Um, so they want people to, to notice that they're doing these these murders, that they're harming people, but they, they want to be able to carry on doing it. So they want to be this kind of urban legend. They want to be this kind of mystical, mythical creature. Um, and they don't want to actually be caught because that would stop them doing it. Right. Okay. So, uh, how, how you know? One thing. I, I'm, this is sort of making my flesh crawl. Talking about all this type of stuff. Can you can you just set me uh, safe here? These are rare occurrences, aren't they? I mean, are we talking? Course, how, yeah. You know, how many serial killers are there? What's interesting there is it all comes back to the definitions. Um, you know, if you change the definitions, I know the FBI used to be two two or more victims, and straight away you have a lot more serial killers because you've lowered the threshold. Mm. But if, you, if it's three or more, then you have less. So, but in terms of our definition of three or more victims, um, they, they are rare. That is reassuring. Um, so um, let us know, again, your, the favourite films, whether or not uh, what you think of American Psycho, what you think of Psycho, any other comments. We're going to play a little bit more music, and we're going to be back. So, um, you know, put a cup of tea on, relax, you know, look out, walk outside, get some fresh air. Just generally, you know, don't panic. Tell them that God's gonna cut you down. There we have it, and that's Johnny Cash. God's gonna cut you down. That's from No Country for Old Men, um, with one of you know cinema's most terrifying on-screen killers as well. And we have uh, our um, our Twitter has been going. Um, gangbusters as i believe they say in young people land um lucy thank you uh, for listening lucy i hope you can hear us well um she mentioned uh, a documentary i'm really fascinated by a documentary called 7852 which is about the making of the shower scene in in psycho and its ongoing influence i'm definitely going to look that up it must mean i presume 78 um cuts and 52 camera angles so um you know that scene is about two and a half minutes it took about a week to film there's loads of interesting stuff about it. You know, um, they found it really hard to to film Janet Lee's eye because she was in a shower, so water kept splashing in her eye, and yes, she had to keep her eye open. So they had to develop all sorts of of techniques and covering the cameras and all sorts. How so long would that take to edit? Um, um, oh, I, I, I'm, you better ask Alfred <laughs> Hitchcock that. Um, that seems that would take a long time. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, I mean, it will be. It, it's 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 a fascinating piece of bricolage, really. But you know, it obviously has such an enduring influence. Any filmmakers out there, um, Joel Blackledge, I'm looking at you. Um, if you can tell us how long it might take to, well, let's watch the documentary. I dare say it tells us. So, 7852, a documentary about that. Loads of other um, contributions from from films. Follow us on Twitter. A question from B Film. Um, we've already touched on this, but this idea that serial killers are abused and tortured, that they abused and tortured animals when they're kids, that's very commonly used. And uh, he, he cites Vars von Trier's uh, very new film, The House That Jack Built, which has a, well, I don't even want to say it, but a, a scene of animal cruelty in it. Again, is that true? Is it true that, you know, you can spot a serial killer at age 10 by the, what they, how they treat their cats? This is something that's come up in, in quite a lot of cases, hasn't it? Um, especially if you go back to the 1980s, you look at a lot of the research that was being done around serial murder back then. There's a, a concept known as the McDonald triad, um, and that's basically three behaviours 
bedwetting, fire setting and cruelty to animals. And it was thought that, that young people, if they have those three behaviours, then they're, they're likely to go on and do some really harmful stuff. But it seems to have just kind of jumped into to the realm of serial murder and and I think filmmakers and uh, the media have kind of seized upon it, haven't they? Yeah, there's there's quite the fi- quite the famous example of Jeffrey Dahmer who used to um, kill and um, kind of mutilate animals, mm. get a curiosity of cadavers and what's inside and how animal, you know how animals work. Um, but really, the you know the vast majority of serial killers don't really. Uh, have that kind of history it's quite a small percentage really that have that kind of history of cruelty to animals Mm. it does make a sort of interesting sort of point though because with serial killers you very often have a situation of escalation and from a narrative point of view it's I suppose it's simple to put across the idea of escalation with starting with cruelty to animals and then ending with a serial killing spree. That's a good point, Kenny. In some ways, for a film, it kind of helps the viewer make sense of the kind of progression of, yeah, how they, how they end up killing a human mm. being. But it also has the, the you know, the other op- other element of distancing themselves from us. You know, we never did that. I mean, you mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer there. There's a, a film coming out. Um, it's, I think the guy who plays Jeffrey Dahmer, it's about him as a child. My friend Jeffrey, I think it's called. Oh, my friend Dahmer, do you know about this, Tim? I think it's my friend Dahmer. And isn't he a pop star or something that plays him? But again, you know, he's there's something obviously off about him, and it separates us. And I just think it, there's a lot of that in these films of us being okay. Well, you know, we can watch these monsters from afar, and it's quite comfortable because we don't have to ask ourselves. And, and you know, excuse me, um, that uh, American Psycho does damage that with us because it, you know he wants all the same things that we want, which is a nice, cool stereo and a nice clothes, mm-hmm. and it doesn't make any distinction between those and wanting to sort of chop heads off his his colleagues. Just to go back a bit as well, in terms of animal cruelty, I, I've recent, I'm doing some research around that, and um, I received quite a, a quite a big data set from the RSPCA, and it's quite prevalent really in terms of the abuse and neglect uh, of animals. So of course, um, you know, if if that leads to serial murder, there'd be an awful lot more serial killers given the amount of animal cruelty that actually occurs well, in our society. You know, we have to look at those statistics in the light of our revelations this week that uh, we, that police have been hunting an animal torturer for three years and turned out to be a fox. So let's hope uh, that there are, maybe it's not as prevalent as all that. Um, now, I want to move on to a film that we've had mentioned uh, on, on uh, Twitter, which is 1978's Halloween. John Carpenter. Um, now, I'm going to, um, if you just talk about yourselves for a moment, because I'm going to try and find the soundtrack uh, for that one, if I can find it. No, I'm not sure I can. Oh, here we are. Here we are. Let's have a listen to this, because this is the first experience of my life of being terrified (laughs) just by a soundtrack. Sorry, I'm not laughing. Putting your teeth on edge, right? My experience of watching this was um, my parents going to uh, a party, his local golf club, and leaving me at home alone. And it was Halloween, and this was on telly, and I turned it on and I just heard this. It was a it was a lovely tracking shot of a lovely um, suburban street. Nothing else going on. Uh, I turned the telly off. I got the Hoover attachment because it was the most weapon-like thing I could find. And I <laughs> I crouched down in the centre of the lounge with every light on in the house, waiting for them to come home for about two hours. Oh no! I was uh, 18. Um, <laughs> but there we are. Halloween. John Carpenter, of course, did the soundtrack as well. Uh, and it is terrifying. 
So we'll leave it on in the background to scare you while we talk about it. Is it... Um, this film is, again, a kind of tentpole of the slasher genre. We have... Uh, is he Michael Myers? That's his name, isn't it? Mike Myers oh, I'm wearing a mask, uh, killing teenagers. But he's not just killing teenagers, he's killing promiscuous teenagers. Teenagers who have extra uh, premarital sex. Um, so there's a lot, and which again is very much a central part of the Friday the 13th franchise as well, and you know has been discussed in great length in other postmodern films like Scream and Cabin and the Woods. This idea that these films are very moralistic, mm. you know, that these you, you've touched on it. This idea that people deserve it because they transgress. Are these films in danger of creating quite a misogynistic worldview? Do you think? I mean, he's John Carpenter's very much re- rejected this, um, but. There has been a big feminist but critique that these films are. It's interesting because I, w- I watched Halloween yesterday and um, preparation for this, and I know Jamie Lee Curtis's character. I know she does smoke uh, cannabis in the car with her friend, but there's up there's a suggestion that she obviously doesn't like it, but she does try it though. So um, mm. I, I well, she doesn't. You know, she doesn't have a, a great time with it. Yeah, <laughs> in the film. yeah, yeah. Her first screen role. I I always read slasher films like this. Uh, this sort of moral stance as like metaphors for sexually transmitted diseases. Mm. I mean, Halloween is like one that stands straight out, but I think about 10 years ago, there was one that really put that to the forefront, uh, that the actual killer was a sexually transmitted disease that was being transmitted from one to character. Was that It Follows? Uh, it Follows, yes. yes. Mm. And then there was uh, the Teeth. The, the yes. Vagina, vagina, den, vagina mm. Dentata. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's definitely sort of Carpenter and others using slashers and serial killers as this sort of moralistic metaphor. Mm. So. And it's interesting when you kind of zoom out and you look at the bigger picture, you look at the, the 70s and the 80s in the US, you've got Reagan and Bush, you've got the war on drugs, you've got just say no, all of this quite kind of moralistic tone to to the political landscape at the time. And it, it's coming out in these films, it's isn't kind it? Of tapping into the, the climate and mm. the, the kind of the social fears and anxieties mm. of, the, of the day. And and that that dimension of kind of sexual component as well, you know, that is very you know key in a lot of these films that that, that, that there's gratification involved for the killer. Again, you know, put my mind at rest. Is that is that true? I mean, is that is that a motivator in these in these sorts of crimes? I mean, Can when we be? look at serial killers, they they fall into a, a range of different categories, and and one of the the categories is the kind of mission oriented serial killer, the the person who wants to rid the world of of this particular group of people. But to be honest, I think the the way that, that film and media make serial killers out, they make them out to be these kind of complex, exciting, dangerous characters. But you know mm. what? Most real-life serial killers are dull as dishwater. Mm. They really are. Yeah, and, and they're nothing like these characters that we see in films. And in terms of the depth of, in terms of his motivation, for um, his own psychiatrist has calls him evil. And I thought that's interesting, that kind of simplification again there of wanting to really delve into the complex... Psychology and motivations, but you know, um, you'll never find a psychiatrist calling someone evil. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, just, he, just, he just says he's just evil, and that's the end of the explanation. Yeah. And <laughs> so, just born bad, yeah, yeah, and uh, of course, covering the face as well, where it's just very uh, blank and mo- um, there's yeah. no emotion there, which I mean, we've seen time and time again. We see Leatherface, we see Mike yeah. Myers, um, what's his name out of what's the guy out of Friday the 13th? J- Jason, Jason Voorhees, Jason, yeah. 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 But I suppose that's uh, sort of bringing back the idea that we've got a simultaneous sort of 
distance from serial killers, but then there could be anybody under that mask. Mm, it could yeah. be you know, your next door neighbour. Mm. You know, so. There's a sequence in um, Joel Schumacher's 8mm, which is a, a film that, in my opinion, is unfairly traduced. I don't know if you've seen it, Tim, when the, the killer is unmasked and he is this sort of you know, socially inadequate guy who lives with his mum. And uh, there's a sort of almost a disappointment from, from the detective, and, uh, and, he, and the killer just says, yeah, I don't understand it either. But, but if you think about it, that's how they were able to get away with it and go under the mm. radar. Because everyone is looking for this big bad, when in fact it's someone yeah. who you tend to just ignore. We wouldn't even give a second look to in the yeah. street. I always think about it as like the Scooby-Doo cartoons, when they take the monster and they take the mask off and it's like the janitor or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any of you have seen, you know, anyone here have got kids, but I've, I've been watching a lot of Scooby-Doo with my kids over the years. Um, the, later de- the latter day ones, there's a fa- there was a fantastic Pomo one once where... They tore off the mask, um, and it was some character who had yet been, was a complete stranger, and he was like, yeah, you know, it's me, but I'm not, you know, he hadn't appeared in any of the other, rest of the episode, and the gang just went, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. And and speaking of masks, Tim, do you know who um, Mike Myers' mask is in the film Halloween? No, I don't. You like this, William Shatner mask. It's a Captain Kirk mask sprayed white with different hair and slightly different eyes. Oh, I do like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I was, I was, I was gonna, on the conversation regarding um, slasher films, um, it is quite funny you talk about the seventies and eighties, but actually, th- there was an element in the nineties where it just became self-aware, that the stereotypes became the source of the the fun, which is scream, why scream, scream, scream yeah. comes to mind. Yeah. Scream is the classic one of that, and, and which I think is Wes Craven's finest film for me. Anyway, aren't um, even watching Halloween? At one point in the film, it, it's so postmodern. It, yeah. I mean, it's it, yeah. it's head spinning. I actually I actually hated it for that reason. But you know, I, I, I you know I couldn't be getting on with it. But it is it is an absolute yeah an absolute classic that just it takes all those things and it is the ultimate in this in in, in I imagine the uh, anathema to you guys because it's the ultimate film about films about serial killers and I imagine entirely unrealistic. Right, one would hope so. <laughs> I think in terms of who the victims are and who the killer ends up being, I, I do think it, the interesting bit there, I can't fully remember the... It might have been the second one where the killer seems to be motivated because he wants the fame and the attention. Mm. And, and I, I believe it's the second one, which is when the, the characters are in like, university, yeah. where it's... Yeah. Where it's um, the motivation seems to be, I want to be on, on TV shows, I want to write a book... Um, and I think that, that's quite interesting in terms of that kind of awareness of... Yeah, we've got the rise of reality TV at that yeah. point in time, haven't we? Yeah. I, I, I still get confused of which one's screaming, which one's scary movie. <laughs> well, you know, it was called Scary Movie. It was. Yes, yeah. Yeah. The original title yeah. was Scary Movie. Then, and then it was changed to Scream, and then, they, and then Scary Movie came yeah. Uh, it's, 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 you know, this is that's postmodern squared, right? Yeah, but, also, but also the motivation, I think, for the first film is... Um, your mum slept with my dad and yeah. then my family fell apart and it seemed it's yeah in terms of a motivation it was a bit thin I think but yeah, yeah. I guess suppose that wasn't really the main yeah it was meant point. to be a, yeah, a riff on all of these things yeah. um, I want to play a bit more music and then I'm going to come back to your tweets and I'm going to try and lighten the mood uh, a little bit um, and um, this one it goes out to, to Lucy um, we hope you're feeling well and we're going to play you this is one of your selections
with his song, that's Roberta Flack. That's from Zodiac. Um, big tune, according to Joel Blackledge, so I'm glad you like it, Joel. Um, and um, that brings us on to Zodiac, is, is a good film to talk about in terms of the detective. You know, the, the thing about Zodiac is we don't see the killer, we don't know, we never get caught. It's about the, the catching. Now, one thing I do know from films is that serial killers are not caught by concerted police effort. They're caught by maverick cops who discover things that no one else walks and and destroys their own marriage and and mental health getting in the head of a serial killer right we've got manhunter we've got clearly starring you know the only way to to catch a killer is to think like a killer right yeah what's just interesting about zodiac is isn't it a, a journalist who actually, yes. actually mm. uh, does the cartoons yeah. at the That's beginning right. of the the film i haven't read the the book or no that much about the case in america but uh i know that he's not he's not actually a uh, police detective, detective yeah, himself yeah, yeah. yeah but, but is it is it you know is it is all this well we see it so many times and, and b film has mentioned mind hunter which is the netflix series based on john douglas's autobiography john douglas i think was the guy which um yeah what's his name the, the guy out of i keep saying john glenn don't i who do i mean you scott mean scott glenn. glenn i mean scott glenn in science of the lambs is based on um a brilliant tv series michael it's michael man isn't it Oh, right. talking about Science I'm talking about Mindhunter. Uh, mind, Mindhunter, m- ma- Manhunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mike, Manhunter, which is Michael Mann. Yeah. Uh, this is a program that you know a lot about, isn't it, you guys? You've done is, a, a whole mind program. Hunter? Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Sorry, I'm jumping around. <laughs> <laughs> we call I like Manhunter as well. I we call really no, well, Michael The confusion we saw with Man, Manhunter is... Manhunter the film, Mindhunter the TV series. Manhunter's the film, yeah. That's the first adaptation of Red Dragon. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Mindhunter, though, this is a recent Netflix TV series about the behavioural science unit mm. tracking down these killers. Um, you like this? Yeah, we did, didn't we? We, we spoke about this um, last year and we all watched every single episode because um, we found it interesting in terms of the, the approach to making sense of serial murder that it represents. So it's very much what we call the medico-psychological approach. So it's getting inside the mind of the serial killer, mm. understanding what makes them tick. Yeah. And, and so many myths come from that, don't they? And I think, I, I think we, re- we really appreciate it. There was a nod to uh, uh, theoretical positions at one, in one episode, yeah, but all yeah. a bit of Durkheim they in were, there. And they were sitting in the bar discussing Goffman. Yeah, yeah. and... And also, they themselves brought up the issues of the, um, the reliability of what they're being, what's being told to them. Are they just telling you what you want to hear, mm. um, or is there some truth to it? And I think that the fact that they acknowledged that, I thought was was good because I think we were afraid that they might just kind of brush past that and let's take everything they say at face value. I mean, as as a series, I found it was it, it was mu- it was possibly misrepresented in terms of its marketing as being a kind of you know psychological thriller. It's actually a, a, you know. It's almost like an office politics mm. uh, drama. It, it's it, it it resolutely doesn't glamorise uh, these these people. You know, it points out that yeah, as you say, but but this whole idea of, of of needing to kind of profile and get into their heads, is that you know is that prevailing how law enforcement look at this stuff, or is it more about DNA and CCTV and? Well, they will very often look at the the crime scene. So there's been quite a lot of work done in this country, actually, by Professor David Cantor about what people leave at a crime scene and what that tells us about them as offenders. Um, so I think that's that's a very useful part of, of investigations, especially when you have a serial perpetrator. It might not be a serial killer. It might be a serial rapist, a serial burglar, looking at what they leave behind at the scene and what that tells us. 
Um, but increasingly now we're we're coming into uh, a stage where forensics really is kind of a, an incredibly significant part of of murder investigations. But um, I think I think we've also got a bit of the CSI effect going on as Absolutely. well. Um, I think that there is a tendency to attribute too much importance to um, what what goes on in labs. Um, whereas when you look at what happens in most police investigations, when they're they're on the trail of a serial killer or a single murderer, it's it's good old fashioned detective work. Course, it's yeah. shoe leather. And it's it, knocking on doors. And isn't it, it involves a lot of people, not just one person. Who mm. everyone's against them, and you know, with all Graham and Clarice Starling, and the idea that they somehow know something that no one else knows. It's very much like a, a combined effort. And is this? I mean, this idea of profiling, this idea of you know building up. You know, I know that this person's forty five and. Uh, X lives X kind of life, blah blah blah. Is that you know? Is that true? Do they do 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 the police sort of do this kind of profiling? They well? do in some cases. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, there was a, a writer that I was very interested in, uh, Paul Britton. He wrote a book called Jigsaw Man, if you've ever read that. And he was he was consulted by the police quite a lot. He's a visiting professor at BCU at the university. Right. He is indeed. And he was, so but be careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kevin. Yeah, he's devilishly uh, handsome, he, uh, as I he recall. He was consulted by the police in many cases of criminal profiling. And quite a lot of the time, he managed to sort of find a, a, a crime, look about how the scene was left, and then just build a picture of the killer from that. And yeah, I think it's important to mention what Kevin's saying, to kind of step in there, is, um, is that with... I know, I know uh, from my reading and my kind of research, when the earlier cases of serial murder in the UK emerged, there was a sheer amount of paperwork involved and a yes. number of possible suspects. And what profiling does is help hone in and get and sieve through all of that to kind of uh, help uh, give the the police kind of um, a way to focus their energies. Absolutely. And I think that's where it's, it's kind of most useful. I'm I'm very much intrigued by a program called um, Manhunt: Hunt for the Unabomber. Which is not a uh, you know not necessarily a great uh, TV series, but it, is, it was all about the birth of forensic linguistics, which is quite mm. interesting. Which is you know the way that they essentially tracked him down was his writing style. Mm. You know, he'd statement write these, analysis. Yeah, mm. so he would look at his he'd write these big um, you know manifestos and demanded it got published and said he wouldn't put any more bombs if they published it, and they could work out you know where he was educated and when and stuff from the way that he wrote, you know, which is a fascinating area. I don't know how true it was. Inevitably, in the end, you know, the, the, the programme has all this and then sort of men just sort of brushes over the fact that essentially one of his family members uh, reported him. And uh, I think that was how they caught him more than, more than this. But uh, an excellent, um, you know, an excellent one. If you're, if you're looking for that kind of um, procedural stuff, mm. uh, perhaps doesn't, doesn't kind of play up the glamour too much. Well, I suppose that's not entirely true. Paul Bettany plays the Unabomber in it and brilliantly he does as well and tim are you a fan of, of police procedurals are you like this kind of well i i really like i really like mindhunter because a bit like the wire uh, which is a series i love is it has slow and you know almost you talk about glacial as a word you know it's how it almost feels like it's how it is things don't happen quickly mm. things aren't necessarily solved at pace um i like the fact that it's sort of um, also it doesn't rely on gore doesn't rely on sexual tension. It doesn't rely on any of the cliches that you get in the CSI procedural stuff. What's for a better word? Yeah. I like that it you know it takes its time. Yeah. That's something I really appreciate. With Fantastic. Um, speaking of um, profiling and sort of um, the the genius cop, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. That's what I'd like to talk about next. 1991's Jonathan Demi directed for me the kind of archetypal 
genius psychopathic you know we all know Hannibal Lecter is a super super genius he can outfox the the the, the law at every turn um and then you know he can only be defeated by someone who can think like him all that stuff you know is this is this idea of the the criminal genius a myth i mean are there you know is there i mean ed kemper i believe was supposed to be very clever wasn't he but is it true that these guys are 10 steps ahead of the police he definitely ticks all the all the boxes in terms of cliche for a serial killer um i can't think of anyone any particular real life case that is similar to hannibal lecter nice I think there are there are probably quite a lot of serial killers out there who would like to think that they are like. There's Hannibal not a Lecter. lot of serial killers out there. Can I just, just say <laughs> in general, of the few that are out there, uh, I think n- none, of none of which are in Birmingham. <laughs> Sleep well. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I think I think it it, it does it does play into that um, that kind of evil genius or madman. You know, mm, these are yeah. the only people who could possibly do such horrendous things, and I think that does kind of take us away from the fact that that when we look at serial killers they're people who have decided time and time again they've made the conscious choice to harm other people repeatedly mm. and that's that's the kind of cold hard truth that i think course, we don't yeah. ever really get to i think the problem i i'm i, I was very torn torn by this film because i think it's stylistically very good but i, I never under, quite felt i understood why you know he did this you know you know he doesn't he doesn't get any he doesn't seem to be any kind of Benefits to him. I don't really understand the, well, the, the motivation. Doesn't Hamlet ultimately escape in the film? Yeah, spoiler for those that haven't oh, seen it, sorry. but it's, <laughs> to be fair, it's been out a while. Um, yeah, it's been. Well, he does because, yeah. of course, uh, there was a sequel, um, yeah. which was ridiculous. Ridley Scott, I believe. I thoroughly good. enjoyed Hannibal. Yeah. I think it's underrated camp, as a camp, uh, yeah. uh, you know, piece of self-indulgence. You know, I've, I've talked about yeah, this many it's times a, before. It's 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 a it's a silly film, yeah, but it it's great fun. But it's very the, funny. The original is is is, is, funny. is terrifying and, and horrifying. Um, it's um, some interesting facts about this. We were talking about this earlier. The original casting for Hannibal Lecter, okay, everyone offered the role and turned it down was Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Wow. Wow. Sean Father Meach. You're very, very different, Hannibal. Oh, Let, <laughs> let's all have a think about that for a and moment. A nice whiskey. Well, <laughs> if we're being really nerdy, by the way, in the original uh, um, Thomas Harris book, he doesn't drink, he doesn't eat uh, the liver with Chianti and, ni- and fava beans. He eats it with Chianti and Amaroni, which is a different sort of wine because that is more suited to eating liver uh, than Chianti, but because it wasn't very well known as a wine type, they changed it. So there you go. Um, (laughs) If you are eating liver today, assuming it's an animal one... I uh, suppose the worst of real-life influences in Buffalo Bill, wasn't there, with the uh, wearing a suit of... Of skin and yeah, Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Mm, and yeah, yeah. That, right. that has that particular component has led to a lot of accusations of transphobia and homophobia in the film. It, this idea that you know, is there you know again is that is this is this something that films often suggest yeah. that there's a link between gender and sexuality? There's a, that, that goes right back to Norman Bates's character. Norman Bates's character. The people say that they're the same. There are similar things going on there, aren't there? Yeah. Like whether the film is portraying him portraying a homophobic line. Yeah. Or, you know. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Um, let us know your thoughts at Screen Brum. I want to. Um, I'm, I'm going to go through some other alternative casting for Hannibal Lecter because I, I looked this up today and it blew my mind slightly. After the uh, Sean Connery, other people considered before Anthony Hopkins. Um, t- Tim's going to do an impression of each one of these. Okay, you ready? <laughs> That's not easy with some of these. Al Pacino. 
Ah! <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, so apologies to all of you who've had your ears blown. That's Al Pacino. Well, I'm breaking the microphone. Hannibal I'm Lecter. Um, okay, um, Robert De Niro, Hannibal Lecter. I can do the mannerism rather than the impersonation. You're going to have to do it on air. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I'm not that far. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite. Dustin Hoffman? Which one? Which a Tootsie Dustin Hoffman? Do do a Tootsie um, Dustin oh God, Hoffman no, Hannibal no, no. Lecter. <laughs> oh no, Tim, and Derek Jacobi was was in the frame, and Daniel Day Lewis as well. You see, the last two I could see. Yeah. Especially Daniel Day Lewis, I would love to see an adaptation of yeah. Hannibal Lecter. Well, and of course Hannibal Lecter initially played on screen in Michael Manhunter by Brian Cox. Brian Cox brilliantly, brilliantly in a there. much better. Better film. Better f- no, a, be- a better portrayal of the character. I think it's a better film, but uh, I love all that 80s. It's really, really super 80s soundtrack and everything. And in terms of uh, Manhunter and Red Dragon in general, I don't want to... You know, I'm spoiling the film well, here. That's okay. It's been out a while. Yes. Um, I love how... Because my whole, my whole PhD and research was on the occupations of serial killing, and how it clicks for Will Graham is that this person works in a shop that transfers home movies into videos, and the idea that he knew how to enter the homes and knew how to dog and the locks through watching these videos, and that's how he realised that this per- who this person is mm. that, through their kind of occupation. And I thought that was a nice touch from just from someone who's researches that a- that area. Ah, interesting. Which is, I mean, for me, the thing about Science of the Lambs is it's much more about Clarice Starling than it is about Hannibal Lecter, mm. isn't it? It's about her growth in... Yeah, I mean, he's behind bars for... You know, and, and I also think that Buffalo Bill is a mu- is potentially could have been a much more interesting character and does get focused on a bit, but that was a very interesting character that was not touched upon as much as perhaps it could have been. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a film that's yeah, it's reduced almost to sound bites now, isn't it? We can just see all these little moments. I think, I think you underplay how good it is as a film. As a, as a piece of... As a film, it's a fabulous yes. film. Uh, and, yes. And, um, you know, you, you can... Everything about it, it... People forget how great the soundtrack is. Howard Shaw's soundtrack is amazing. Yeah. The interplay between Clarice Starling and Scott Glenn's character, all of that stuff, it's brilliant. That, that um, especially, actually. That's and the, the, the Scott Glenn... Chloe Scott Starling kind of scenes, they are they are so brilliantly They're done. They're brilliantly done. And, Very understated. And I, I still find the ending, you know, where, where, where she hunts down Buffalo Bill, scares the living Jesus out of me every single time, irrespective, you know, you know that whole hand thing. Oh, it touches her hair. Okay, it's right. Bad. I'm going to play some music to, to relax us again. Um, I'm going to play something that's, that's you know, oops. Keep putting the wrong song. Apologise, everyone. Um, let's have some. You know, let's have some Marvin Gaye. You cannot feel depressed with Marvin Gaye. Relaxed now. It's Marvin Gaye. He's got to give it up. Part one thereof, and that's from the Summer of Sam, which is a Spike Lee film. I think from about 1999. About. Well, it's not about the Son of Sam uh, murders in America, but it's about it's set against the background in the, the hot summer of whatever year it was where uh, New York was. Oh, here we go. Got to do that, right? Um, where New York was terrorised by the Son of Sam. Um, thank you all for your tweets. They are absolutely pouring in. Um, B-Film have asked whether serial killers have always been with us. I mean, certainly in the films, we talk, he, he mentions the 20s and 30s, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and... Uh, Fritz Lang's M, which um, Fritz Lang's M is a film I'm, I'm recommending to everyone at the moment because um, you know, it's brilliant. Peter Laurie in it uh, about a uh, a murderer who there's a there's a sequence in it where he has to he basically says I couldn't you know I don't have any choice I'm kind of driven by this and it's just kind of the the prototype for a lot of these kind of crazed psycho killers that have no alternative. But is this a new phenomenon? You know they're talking about the 
the, you know, these things were set in the rise of Nazism and a lot of this stuff was kind of parallel to that, but are they new serial killers? I suppose we don't know, do we? Well, there's, there's quite a lot of research that says serial killers are a distinctly modern phenomenon. When you look at the, the rates of serial murder, they tend to peak at particular points in time where modernity really is in full flourish. And you look at the stats from the, the 1980s, from the US, there does seem to be a, a real peak around that time. And I think that ties in with a lot of the things that we look at um, in, in our work as criminologists. We look at the bigger picture. We look at the kind of society in which this happens, the kind of society where it's increasingly selfish and individualistic and, and narcissistic. And there are those values of envy and greed and, and those types of things. And that's when we tend to find this kind of level of violent behaviour. Yeah, uh, following from what um, Liz was saying, um, when you have all of that as well, but then you also have certain policies and um, approaches in a society that leads to marginalisation in groups as well. So the elderly who can't compete and contribute in a capitalist society, sex workers, of course, other groups that are in some way uh, kind of targeted or or ignored and marginalised. The haves and the have-nots, isn't it? Yeah, so you have that kind of competitive individualistic behaviour that's kind of encouraged in some way and then you have these groups that are marginalised and ignored, it kind of creates this kind of perfect storm, hence why an awful lot of serial killers seem to have emerged in the 1980s. So mm. when we look at serial killers and a lot of them seem to be these uh, socially inadequate losers which, whether that's you know a stereotype that we've built on or whatever, I mean that fits well in with the narrative of the 1980s being this period of when everybody was going, getting rich, everybody was getting, you know, being, by being more selfish and being more greedy, like the business market was going like that, and what else? so these people that couldn't just keep up, they were being marginalised. Mm. So they, it's they were sort of dropping out, so to speak, of what what we class as society. This this brings us on to the next thing I'd like to talk about, which is you know maybe not a sort of tentpole movie, but it deals with a lot of these issues, which is around kind of being recognised and stuff, which is the film Copycat. Um, which is from 1995, John Amiel directed. Um, I mean, it's got Sigourney Weaver, Holly Hunter and Harry Connick Jr. Uh, in. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, what's not to like? And this is a film about, you know, copycat killers, people who copy other killers, um, you know, fame and all of that kind of stuff you just touched on. Is this real? Do people do this? Well, just before we go on to that, I think that, that film's really interesting about the stereotypes again. So I know the first scene in that film is Scorny Weaver talking about, um, she asks all the, the men, the, the white, uh, young, middle, or middle-aged men to stand up and, you know, she says, you know, um, how these are the t- typical profile of a serial killer. And t- uh, just to kind of touch upon that in terms of the ethnicity, you know, there are an awful lot of... Um, serial killers who uh, don't fit that profile at all. Just for example, just Chester Turner in America, North American serial killer, African-American who killed 11 women. So just before we go into the copycat bit, it's important to emphasize that um, from the beginning of that film, that stereotype of what a serial killer is, is kind of straight away kind of um, projected. So, so, so Sigourney Weaver in this plays a professor of criminology, an expert in serial killers. So, you know, you must have a particular interest in this film. Uh, do you do you approve? Do you approve of how she how she says it? Obviously, at the beginning, she's obviously got off to a bad start. But uh, well, he, he uses um, real life cases to set set the template for the copycats. Um, but in terms of having have someone um, methodically copying a number of serial killers and changing their patterns yeah. completely, 
uh, that's very rare. Like circuits tend to have a pattern um, that isn't linked upon them trying to replicate or copy someone else's. Yeah. It's much more internal and expressive of their of their own motivations. How they feel it be, is the most efficient way for them to do their work, and they sort of you know they don't begin fully formed. They sort of escalate as they go along. So they may discover something, an easy way to do something, in order to achieve the goal of killing someone, and then that would move carry on to the next, and or until they improve it and help them carry on to the next, etc. Mm-hmm. Et yeah, and so in terms of the confidence. Yeah, yeah they they yeah. tend to work on it and get better at it, and and kind of for want of a better term, perfect their modus operandi. But I think one of the really interesting things about the film Copycat is it forces us to ask how do we get our information about serial killers how would somebody get to the point where they knew so much about a particular murder that they were able to replicate it and that brings into the the debate the the media the role of the media the representation of serial murder how much is it really necessary for us to know and i know over the past few years when um, we've had cases of serial murder come into the news some of the detail that that is disclosed sometimes i think really you know it's it's too much we we really don't need that yeah and how there's too much focus on them not so much the victims I mean, there is there is that um, there is someone, isn't there? Some professor who's done. You know, this is how the media should respond to when you have, for example, these spree killers that you have. You know, go off on shooting sprees, and and you know, always say you don't talk about the killer, you talk about the victims, you downplay the whole thing, you don't make it seem dramatic and exciting. But our media never seem to. Mm. I suppose in similar films with the media, it creates uh, a narrative that sells, especially if it's prolonged and the case is ongoing and there's a mystery involved of who done it. Mm. I think that, of course it kind of makes sense in some way why the media do that but it's not the most no, ethical I, I mean i've always thought that by playing up the killing itself and not playing up the victim then it's taken that human element out so it's easier to you know sort of fetishize it it's easier mm. to keep that keep it at a distance by not mentioning any sort of human element or sympathetic element in it you're actually sort of saying okay this is this is this event here we can sort of not empathise, but because mm. that's easier but to report. Yeah, and again, with what Liz was saying, in terms of the ideal victim, if most serial killer victims don't fall into that category, then of course that, that gives them another justification to focus on, on the, the, the perpetrator. Yeah. And serial killers themselves will follow the media coverage of their cases. Um, a colleague of ours, a case around about 10 years ago now, um, he was commenting on the case in the media and it was very, very clear that after it was all over and all of the details had come out of the trial that he was following what our colleague was saying and responding to it and changing his offending behaviour in in response to that. So so I think the, the question of the media, how it's represented is, is such a crucial one. How it can actually aid the killer mm. to evade detection, yeah. Right. Well, um, yes. Um, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm slightly again thinking, you know, about watching these films. Is this, you know, is there a kind of potentially are we danger? You know, you know, talk about copycat. They're saying they're following the mo. Are these films in danger of being instruction manuals? You know, that I mean, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I think you know had a bit of controversy, and I'm not sure on those terms. But you know, do you think there's a danger of that? These films become something that people can get inspired by. In rare occasions, there has been uh, cases where killers have emulated movie uh, movie killers. Uh, there was a guy in London about 2004, sort of Essex way, 
I'm not going to mention his name because I can't remember it, but he emulated uh, Freddy Krueger. He, he got a, a load of knives and just started stabbing people uh, in a suburb in, in Essex. That's interesting though, because that's more like a horror film, and well, yeah. and, and, to, and from that though, I know Jeffrey Dahmer. He used to watch, I think it was The Exorcist three, um, so not, and which I do believe has, I think it's based on Je- Gemini, Gemini killer. That's right. Tim, Tim's very excited here because he loves that film, don't you? Best jump, best jump scare ever. Yeah, <laughs> there is a there is a best jump scare. But of the all element films. of the supernatural though, rather than the films that try and be more realistic, mm-hmm. you know. I think often serial killers, people who are intent on harming others, are going to be consuming this sort of media anyway. It's not a cause and effect relationship. And there are so many other factors in the background that that combine to to get to to a point where somebody makes a decision to do this kind of thing. But then, of course, you've got the other end of the scale. uh, Famously, Charles Play 3 uh, was seen to be an influence on the uh, Jamie Bulger killing. Mm. And yet there is no real evidence that the two kids watched the film mm. just because an event in the killing happened uh, that happened in the film. Mm. I think it be, it helped people make sense of it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's that's the only reason that, why that was there. Really, that seems to be a huge thing here is, is that it's a, again, oh, well, if, that's why and computer games are fulfilling yeah. that role at the moment as well. It stopped us asking some very difficult questions yeah. about the state of society. Yeah. Yeah. So video games is like a billion dollar industry, so is films. And if, if it was really killing, you were turning these people into murderers, and there'd be an awful lot more... I don't know if you've seen, uh, Tim, have you seen, I can't remember what it was called, it's Daniel Radcliffe um, and Bill Paxton made a film about the making of Grand Theft Auto computer game um, and about the, you know, Bill Paxton plays a sort of of small town American uh, minister who's horrified by these violent games and goes on a sort of crusade to, to stop them being made. Um, it's it's really interesting because again in that one you don't ha- you know he's he's actually very sympathetic and you sort of think yeah I see where he's coming from it doesn't it does have a slightly more nuanced view of it than because Daniel Radcliffe is just his character is just like no you know get lost it doesn't have an influence but you know it would be, be naive to say it has no impact because you say it's the ground in which these sort of things grow the game changes. Um, the talking about the supernatural component there, Kevin. I wanted to bring in one of my all-time favourite serial killers. I'm going to play a clip from it now. If you know what the film is, if you can tweet, it's 55. This clip is 55 seconds long. You've got 55 seconds to tweet what film it is. One of you already got it before I've even said it and has tweeted it, so uh, you can be impressed. But um, if you uh, if you know what it is, tweet at Screenbrum. Um, and it is, if you haven't seen this film, I'm going to insist you do as soon as the show finishes. Have a listen. Once I put the... Whoa! No, that's not it. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, everyone. That was uh, a little bit of a, a com- computer snafu. Um, talk amongst yourselves while I uh, correct that. And let's have another go at playing this incredibly atmospheric sequence, which I have slightly taken the edge off. Ah, the little lad just staring at my finger. Would it like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. A right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch him. Old brother left hand, 
Left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won, and old left hand hate is down for the count. Getting too excited by uh, listening to that, they realise it was only 55 seconds long. Um, did anyone get that? That was um, Robert Mitchum. That gives you a, a big clue. That's giving it away, man. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Night of the Hunter. Uh, it's just a brilliant film. I don't know if you've seen it recently, Tim. Visually, just amazing. There's a sequence in it where it's a Robert Mitchum is trying to get these two kids, uh, and it's kind of set in a small town, deep South American environment, and the the protector of the kids is a sort of older woman and she's sitting in a, in a um, uh, rocking chair with a shotgun so he can't get there and he's sitting out in the garden on a log and he's singing to her and we see it through this window and it's really chilling and then one of the kids comes in with a candle and so the room gets full with light and we can't see out the window for a second blow the candle out God, so so good it is Charles Lawton direct, he's only directorial film I think um, and it is brilliant and that is the, the, the thing I'd like to talk to you about which is this whole religious dimension to it him he plays a sort of um, you know, he pretends to be a, a sort of fire and brimstone style preacher and a lot of these films have a kind of religious component to the killing whether it be sort of satanism or this sort of veneration of the um, uh, of, of the ritual you know and we see it in a lot of the science of the lamb stuff, you know, everything, even secular, looks sort of very cathedral, all the settings. Is there, you know, is this a, is this a factor? Is this is this something that is looked at, this idea of religion as, as a motivator in these crimes? During the 1980s, uh, we used to moral panic quite a lot. And there was a, a satanic moral panic, right, where a lot of adults were concerned. Great album, by the way, Satanic yeah. Moral Panic by... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't realise that. Yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, a lot of adults were considered that their children were getting into a lot of, you know, satanic rituals, etc. Mainly, mainly because people were listening to Ozzy Osbourne records backwards. You know. Yeah. But. Well, it's uh, it's Judas Priest, wasn't it? Ah, um, yes. There's a there's a great bit of footage of the court case of that. Um, it's surreal. One of the, you know, so the singer I can't remember his name. What's the singer in Judas Priest, Tim? Rob Halford. Rob Halford. Um, you know, he's, he's, all, he's got his suit on everything. He's in court. Uh, and he's explaining that this sound on the record is actually just the way he breathes. So he's, he has to sort of sing in court. Um, so it's all just sort of restating. He's, he's going, better than you, better. He's just, just, you know, a cappella. It's bizarre. Well, they can play it backwards. And he says, is this a usual way of breathing? And he says, um, well, Elvis made a career out of it. Uh, so, yes, anyway, sorry to interrupt you. But, yeah, so that sort of fits in with the religious serial killer films of that era because it you know feeds into that moral panic mm. well it feeds into and is fed by that moral panic so where that sort of fits in with everything outside it's not incredibly clear. i think there can be quite loose links when they when they when they're captured and they say well i did it because i'm trying to clean the streets up or you know sex workers you know well, god filthy. told me to do it yeah, yeah, yeah i think there's an element of uh, trying to move the blame I think I know mm. with um, with Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. He said he heard voices of of God telling him to kill sex workers, but um, I think that's pretty much been dis- 
credited now oh, in, in terms of his motivations. But also, an awful lot of Surikas are motivated due to expressive internal motivations. It's uh, lust, you know, sexual power and control. And so this kind of idea of doing kind of uh, the Lord's work or religious motivations, I think at the very, I can't really think of any cases where it's explicitly and, I and think clearly. A lot that. of it plays into the, the kind of misogyny of it as mm. well in terms of judgments of women's behaviour, um, judgments of particular social groups that they're, that they're not behaving in a pure and, uh, and godly way. Um, so I think it, it does link into quite a few of the areas that we look at when we, we look at serial murder. It looks at excusing their behaviour, um, justifying it in terms of a, a bigger context, but also in terms of how society makes sense of it. Because often when you have got somebody saying, well, God told me to do this, um, you will interpret that as the general public as, oh, well, this person's insane then, aren't they? Mm. So it's um, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I don't feel that there's a, a single person alive that is going to hear God told me to do it and think, oh, God talks to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I'll have to think about that as a legitimate, yeah. Um, okay, um, well, speaking of um, God speaking to us um, through mechanisms, let's have God speaking to us through the mechanism of Phil Collins. Um, and I'm going to play Susudio from, um, you know, he, he I is... I most definitely approve. God's Emerson. And think about this. This is um, from, of course, um, the soundtrack to American Psycho. Just as you listen to this, remember that the man who sang and presumably played drums on this also was the drummer in the most excessive phases of Genesis as well. Um, and, you know, in terms of... You know, serial killers doing things that you can't quite comprehend. That's a that's a leap I can't get. You know, going from Genesis to this, and I approve, but nonetheless, it's quite something. Have a listen. See if you know what I mean. If I press the button, right. Um, one debate we're having here in the studio is what on earth does Susudio mean? If anyone knows what a Susudio is, let us know. <laughs> we don't know. Um, Tim, we've had a lot of tweets in, haven't we? We've been oh doing God, really well on that. This is, this is this year's busiest show for Twitter, yeah, so we've really touched uh, people's... Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. <laughs> this is the interesting one. We're a crowd who loves a good thriller and a crime Absolutely. So, so what are we learning? How many people got on Night of the Hunter? Well, the first one to get it was B-Film. Yeah. Straight onto it. And uh, he uh, pointed out that uh, um, uh, Mitchum and uh, Hopkins are really are really two of the actors who've underst- you can understand how to do evil mm. um, very, very well. So good Although, contrary to that, Steve Green, Steve's, Steve Ghostwords on Twitter, has said that Anthony Hopkins' lecture sounds like Paul Lind impersonating Liberace by the way of Truman Capote, <laughs> about, about as scary as a lukewarm mint tulip. Uh, Brian Cox in Manhunter, on the other hand, dot, 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 but I do agree about Robert Mitchum's riveting performance in Night of the Hunter. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, yeah, good point again from B Film. He uh, he brings in the, the the Korean and Japanese films about serial killers. You know, I, I kind of agree. If I was to do a top three today, no doubt one of Park Chan Wook's films would have featured. Um, you know, he mentions Vengeance is Mine, mm. and then talks about films like Slice. If you've seen Smaller and Smaller Circles, I haven't. I have seen Cold Fish, and he also mentioned a film called Creepy. Worth seeing if you you can stomach them. He's saying. Mm. Uh, and also a little anecdote surprise surprise uh, cannot so I'm saying well out of that and one more thing a little anecdote uh, in light of having just played uh, Su 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 Studio um, (laughs) Phil Collins said that he was flattered 
to have had this film featured and said he went to see the musical and he was surprised they made one. A musical <laughs> of American Psycho? It said, if, yeah, if my music is being, yeah, if my music is, is held as being representative in era, then that's more than I thought would happen to me when I was 13 or 14. Uh, <laughs> there is also a sequel um, to American Psycho 2 with Mila Kunis is in that. As an early, apparently she didn't know it was American Psycho 2 when she made the film. And they sort of recot- yeah, I think it you know, basically doesn't pay any time. But there is also, a, the, uh, for a few years, there's been a TV adaption in the works um, picking him up in the present day, age 50, Right. Fi- in his 50s, sort of picking a, uh, choosing a protege, which may be interesting, because I suppose, you know, you're looking at all those parallels with individuals, and we think about the 80s as being this kind of arch-individualistic society time, but has it really changed? I don't know. I mean, it is pretty amazing, all these TV series. That, I mean, this, again, it's the power of Netflix, isn't it? It's completely liberated the creative instincts of these people that you can actually do this and re- re- bring re- bring back to life these characters uh, they seem to make anything these days I saw a comedy show the other day where someone would just rang up Netflix head office and their recorded message is just um, hello Netflix Netflix you're green lit uh, <laughs> <laughs> just anything gets made and you know hang the the ratings which I approve of frankly yeah, absolutely. So um, that's me for now thank you and um, and we have also had a tweet in that um, again B film thank you for listening has approved of our or my uh, comment on Manhunt Unabomber um, which apparently comes from John Douglas's book. John Douglas, is he one of those FBI... He was indeed, he was. Yes. types. Um, and yes, Sam Worthington as a bland lead, but Paul Bettany is terrific at capturing and expressing the serious philosophy underpinning his character's violent actions. You do genuinely understand why he does what he does in that film, and you see the final shot of it is, uh, is really interesting, I think, from that point of view. Tim? So a question from Lucy for the uh, experts here. Uh, what would you say are the best and least sensationalist documentaries on the subject? Uh, Lucy points out Eileen as an example. She said both fascinating and terribly sad. Mm. Yeah, mm. I quite liked Eileen, actually, because I, I felt that that got to grips with not just the, the the sensationalist this is the the terrible thing that she did but why did she do it where did that come from so is this is the character whom monster is based on is yes, that right I the, 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 sorry the real person yeah. yes um so she's she's a serial killer that, that often kind of defies sort of academic categorization isn't she i think people are very tempted to put her into the the sexual predator category as the only one that's actually in there as a female serial killer um, but I think looking at her background, looking at her upbringing, um, looking at the, the circumstances in which um, she was brought up, if you could even call it that, um, was was a really interesting insight into the, the making of somebody like this. Yeah, and how she kind of typically falls into the, what could be a, a victim of serial murder, mm. being she a sex worker. She could easily be the yeah. victim, mm. couldn't she? Yeah, and that's mm. really interesting. Well, that's, isn't that her uh, motivation, is, in, is initially in self-defence, and then... Really and then she becomes, if certainly in Monster, she becomes convinced that people are, you know, everyone is, is as you say, someone who has that, um, you well, know, we, we worry about people being exposed to sort of, you know, dangerous, violent situations on screen, but, um, you know, it's presumably a lot worse to have it at home when you're a child. Mm. Um, it's gonna <laughs> something that maybe we should pay more attention to. Um, another question um, from Lucy Beth, um, which, which is one I'm really uh, interested in, is what are the most annoying basic procedural thil- things in films that annoy you? What are the things that you look at and go, oh? Uh, the thing that really annoys me is where you get one individual kind of 
doing about five or six different jobs. Yeah. So they're the investigator, they collect the crime scene evidence, they go and interview all the witnesses, they do everything. Whereas in real life, that's not how it happens at all. There are some very distinct roles in the investigation uh, yeah, of and crime. Yeah, g- and getting into the mind yeah. of the killer as well, that kind uh-huh. of process, oh, I've got to get into the mind, and that's just... Yeah, My biggest bugbear is well, things that go into what we call the CSI effect. Mm. I mean, we've we've got this sort of idea now that crimes can be solved in an hour plus commercials. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's these CSI cases when you know tests are done like that. You know, and they the never show them the invoice yeah. that they're presenting yeah. for that particular <laughs> test. Yeah. Right? that's a really good point, Kevin. The, the timing of the, exactly, uh, the yeah. tests. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my friends recently was was burgled, and um, uh, the 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 burglar had cut their hand on the window they'd broken. And of course, my first reaction is, well, I presume they'll send it off for a full spectrum DNA analysis. <laughs> um, you know, and it turns out it's possibly not the best use of resources. Who knew? You know, to catch some teenager. Um, but um, so, anything else? Anything? Any kind of myths that you that you would like to explode that these moves make for us? Well, the main one for me would be the the myth of stranger danger, mm. which I think serial killer films really do perpetuate Um, when we look at most people who are murdered they're killed by people they know so husbands kill wives mothers kill children you don't get the stranger jumping out of the bushes as you're jogging through the park that's not what murder looks like but I think unfortunately um, we do tend to to very much have that that stereotype in mind when we think about homicide the idea that they're this super genius and they all fit into this one neat category or stereotype as well that you know serial killers come in all different uh kind of shapes and sizes and uh, ethnicities and i think that's quite an important uh thing that i think movies need to move away from Mm -hmm. yeah it's i mean the i always think that the ideal victim is a very important feature that a lot of films get wrong you know the the middle class blonde beautiful woman who is you know hanging around with her middle class blonde beautiful friends they're not going to be victims of a serial killer in real life in real life no mm. no they're not going to be they they don't fit in the category it is homeless people it is you know sex workers it is people who are marginalized at the bottom end of society you know and serial killer films because it because it it's more glamorous to have you know the beautiful victims mm. I mean, it often happens in, in. I'm just thinking again in Silence of the Lambs. You know, you know there is an initial start point for his. You know, he does kill some, you know, relatively unglamorous person for the view of the film, early on, and that happens all off screen and is is incidental. And that sometimes is, you know, is sometimes talked about. Oh yeah, he sort of killed his mum, whatever. But then he did all this really cool, exciting, dramatic stuff. So I think that's a really interesting point. But does it um, does it matter that these things, you know, the films get this stuff wrong? I mean, from the point of view of whether we look at them as entertainment, whether we look at them as social critique, as whether we look at them as metaphor, does it matter, do you think? I think as long as we're taking lessons, uh, and important life lessons from the media, yes, it does matter. Because, you know, the idea of stranger danger... I mean, I, I've noticed lately, I mean, my, uh, my, my friend told me this, that they don't teach kids stranger danger anymore. They teach them about shifty adults. Mm. Like, really? Yeah. They don't yeah. do the Charlie the Cat stuff anymore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I think there's there are that that sort of thing is something valuable that we've taken from mm. media influence. Mm. But I think portrayal and representation, until we sort of decide, you know, 
to start every TV show with this is for entertainment purposes only. Mm. I think it is important that we sort of get some sort of reality and representation. And I think sometimes it's it's a good thing that they get it wrong because it allows us to have discussions like this. It allows us to talk to our students yeah. about it. It allows us to, to write blogs about to it. To rant and, for hours. And to <laughs> rant on and on and on. Um, so I think it, it stimulates discussion. And I think that's, that's always but a good But do you thing. think, it, I mean, uh, you know, on a broader position, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the recent publicity we've had about these these awful cases of, of, of child abuse and grooming where the victims have been on, have been been disregarded and, and they're and they're ten, you know it seems to be that it's been extremely difficult to paper seriously it ties exactly what kevin's been saying about these are not quote unquote the ideal victim um you know do, do, do you think there's a danger a genuine sort of societal danger of us thinking we know what these criminals are like from the well, screen i think in terms of the victims the betrayal of the victims in the films is a, a kind of demonstration of how we ignore those who are marginalized and who can be victims of serial I mean, even though it's rare that those are the ones that often victims and as we are in real life and how we walk around and neglect to maybe ignore these groups who might need our help you know the films as well are also neglecting and ignoring to shine a light on those uh, margins so just from that just kind of following on from what Kevin was saying um, I'm going to play some more uh, music uh, in a moment and um, we have got um, what we've got we've got 10 minutes of the show left so there is an opportunity for you to send in your tweets if you have any more questions for our experts here we have uh, three criminologists, uh, career criminologists, I'll call them, um, from the university, sorry, B uh, Birmingham City University, um, who can answer lots of questions around uh, these uh, the serial killer and the serial way the serial killer is represented. So, at Screenbrum or um, info at screenbrum.co.uk. Is that right, Tim? Is it .co.uk? You can you can email us any questions, any thoughts, uh, and I'm going to play something from a. Serial killer film I haven't seen, um, but it does have an amazing soundtrack, so we're letting that one go. Um, um, you'll, you'll, you'll know the song, you may not know the version of it, but it is a fantastic, fantastic version of something which really is hard to improve on, so enjoy. getting too excited we're talking to all things Led Zeppelin which that is not that is immigrant song Led Zeppelin song of course but it's uh, Karen O Trent Reznor and is it Atticus Ross correct and that's from the soundtrack to the girl with the dragon tattoo the Fincher version the yes. David Fincher American version of which uh, a sequel the girl in the spider's web or something is it the kick, kick, kick the hornet's nest is coming out soon with Claire Foy yeah um, so she's gone from you know she's gone from the queen hasn't she, uh, to that. So that's quite a stretch. Let's see how good she is. I'm sure she is. Um, thank you for all your tweets. Um, a number of people have co commented on a film which i really glad they have because it is one of my all-time favourites, which is uh, Peeping Tom. Um, yes. So we've heard about that from both B-Film and from uh, Lucy. Uh, Lucy Beth, hi. Good to hear you're still tuning. Uh, Sue listening in. Um, she said it's only right to mention it's utterly brilliant. Murder by 16mm us watching him, watching them suffer, horrible challenge of our voyeurism. And this was a film early on, it's got Anna Massey in it, um, 1960 film that destroyed the career of uh, Power and Pressburger, really. It's a very um, 
dark film about and in it's it's uncomfortable watching because it does play into this stuff we've talked about around watching's voyeurism this idea that um yeah the serial killer kind of wants to 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 see you know the the suffering that they cause which is uncomfortable for us to watch because then we're conscious that we're doing exactly the same thing yeah i think that's something that needs to be researched more in serial killer uh, serial killing uh, kind of discourse academic discourse is the importance and the emphasis on the voyeurism and the watching and the gaze might in you know you see it in the films you might uh, Mike Myers and Halloween and Psycho as well, uh, In Through the Wall. That is something I think is very important to be examined in more detail. I think that is actually, what, in some ways, just as if not more important than the killing itself is that build-up. I feel like there's a, I feel like there's an amazing social media age film waiting to be made around this because I can imagine, you know, people can now watch so much, you know, that that previously would have been private. People will present online. People can understand. As you say. You know the, the the character the 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 killer in in Manhunter watches these by by sort of developing films. I think that happens in is it one hour photo as well, Tim? Is that the one with um, Robin Williams? Robin Williams. Williams. I think it does yeah, a similar. It's really, it's really strong, really quite scary. It uh, does a similar sort of thing in there. But yeah, I imagine there's a, there is a a film that's just come out called Searching. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one. It just just come out. I love Searching. Yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it's it's really good. That's that's yeah. seen made exclusively through social media and. Yeah, you watch most of the film through a, through watching a, t- a computer screen. Yeah, and it does it really, really well. Um, and, and then it was really good. You know, the the thing I really hate in films is where the where characters do the procedural and tell us the plot. Yeah. In the, the way that 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 the device of using the TV, uh, using social media to do that instead of people talking. Yeah. Uh, it's very very clever. It's worth seeing. Very yeah. good. Fantastic. Yeah. Um and um. Any more last-minute tweets? Just looking through, we've had um, lots of love for um, the um, the. We've talked about um, Mind Hunter. We're getting a lot of love for that. A lot of love for um, what's it as well? Um, Peeping Tom. If you haven't seen Peeping Tom, I do recommend it. And um, we're right at the end of the show. We want to play out with some music, but I do want to to say thank you to our guests and also give them an opportunity to to let us know anything else. Hopefully, something that will let us sleep well tonight but um first of all thank you very much Thanks for coming us. in um thank you. anything you know anything else anything we haven't talked about anything you would like to make us feel better or perhaps worse not worse please not worse uh, well one of us should probably say that events of serial killing are incredibly rare mm-hmm. right so yes very that's true. one thing we want to put to and, and that's right i mean is it is it also the case that is is it declining um, you know, murder as a whole is declining, isn't well, it? But one of the things I'm looking at is that not? Uh, future research is that kind of shift from the physical to the virtual and um, how it, we are better now at identifying and apprehending serial killers, um, but they always seem to evolve and to try and find new ways to evade detection. And we're seeing more taking place, more serial killers looking online, um, you know, looking, looking for victims that way. Um, so I think that's something that needs to be researched in more detail is the use of the internet in multiple homicide. Mm, okay. So, and Tim, anything you'd like to add? Any films we, you want people to go away and watch this weekend? Um, a film that is quite a controversial one, I would go for William Freakin's Cruising with Al Pacino. Mm. Um, it caused a lot of controversy because of the nature of looking at um, a, mur- a murderer in the gay scene in, 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 within a context of homosexuality. Mm. It was seen as homophobic and... Uh, yeah, but I think it's actually it, it needs it needs to be rev- revised because I think it's actually a very good film, even if it does have dubious 
maybe subtext or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah. this was the 70s. 81, 1981. 1981, so yeah, yeah so it's hopefully we moved on a little bit, but yeah. And also, um, B Film says, um, seriously great show, guys. Have to yeah. go now. I'm having an old friend for lunch. <laughs> 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 right. Uh, on that note, I'm going to play out with uh, a final uh, piece of music. This is um, Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus. This is one of your selections, wasn't it, Tim? This is from, uh, yep. this is from Silence of the Lambs? Um, and I think this is the sequence. Infamous scene. Yes. Um, also, Lucy picked this. Um, Lucy, we hope you get well soon. Um, the rest of you, we want to say a great big thank you for tuning in and for taking part. And of course, to our three guests here in the studio, extremely interesting uh, chat. Really appreciate you coming in. Um, any final words before we go? Don't have nightmares. Don't. <laughs> yes. Don't. in <laughs> Sort of the, what is it? Yeah, don't have nightmares. Just sleep well. Just sleep well. (laughs) Incidences of serial killing are extremely rare. Okay, have a good weekend, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Our next show is all on the theme of revolutions. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website will go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.